Views expressed on this program are those of the sponsors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the station. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA and SIPC. Investment Advisor Representative, Cambridge Investment Research Advisors Incorporated, a registered investment advisor. Indices mentioned are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Asset allocation and diversification strategies cannot assure profit or protect against loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Capital Retirement Strategies and Cambridge Investment Research are not affiliated. All right, welcome to Plan for Life Now, episode number 93. Dave, I got to admit to you, when we're, we're counting the episodes, I start yeah. to get a nervous pit in my stomach thinking, oh my gosh, if we get to 100, I feel like I have to do something bigger or better or something. <laughs> like I, I have this nervous pit that, oh my gosh, I, I don't know what to do for 100. Well... If when we get to episode 100, if we were to follow what got us to episode 100, is what right. people do, then we would prepare absolutely nothing or the minimum amount that we normally do, because I, I that feel, would really be the best way to celebrate that type of anniversary. <laughs> I feel like if if you know if we were a real radio show with real producers, they would go back and they would like dig up funny moments from the podcast or radio shows over time and play those. I just, I don't have the time or ability to do that. No, we're not going to do that, but we'll see. We may come up with something. Who knows? This still got seven episodes and the way we're going, that might not be till sometime in January. Right. All right. We will do. It's the summer. (laughs) Welcome everybody. Here we are in late July. Checking in with everybody, I I thought, of course, for this episode, the first thing that we have to do is a review of the markets. Not like you've been waiting around for this podcast to come out to find out how the markets are doing. Everybody knows that it's been a, a pretty rough year to be an investor. And it doesn't really matter what you've been an investor in. You know, of course, the, the big headlines, you know, stock market, S&P 500, certainly into bear market territory at this point. I think at the worst, the S&P 500 was down 23 or 24%, something like that. And it, you know, it's bounced back a bit, but it's, it's always hovering right around that 20% uh, number lately. And of course, if you've been an investor in technology stocks, small cap stocks, right. Oh, you know, that that's looked pretty ugly. You know, the Nasdaq has been down well over 30 percent. And right. of course, you've been. Yeah, those numbers. It's like we always look at the S&P and, and that's bad enough. But the small cap numbers, like you said, the tech stuff, pretty ugly. Well, and the, the interesting thing is it's been those exact stocks that really carried the market for so long have, for the most part, really been getting crushed. 
So, you know, you look at Google down 28%, Amazon 34%, Facebook 55%, Tesla 33%. I mean, all these companies that have done so well are really, you know, dragging the market down at this point. So, you know, yes, stocks get all the headlines, but I, I would really say, you know, and, and you can throw in there, <laughs> we don't even want to go down the, the crypto discussion. Uh, but I, I think uh, the, the cryptocurrency argument that they can be a diversifier to stocks and go up when stocks go down, well, that that didn't play out too well, at least this year. Right. I've decided I, I know what I like about doing 100 episodes of a podcast, now that we were talking about that, evidence of our opinion of crypto. <laughs> well, believe me, I've... <laughs> I've said this many times before. I've heard really smart people tell me why crypto is the future of money and really smart people tell me it's worthless. I, you know, I don't think it's entirely worthless, but I'm not willing to wager much at all on that. Right, but the, um, the school of thought of a lot of people, including us, is if you don't get it, stay away from it till you do yeah. get it, at least. It, it yeah. probably feels right. Right. But, you know, what I was going to say, stocks obviously get all the headlines, but in my mind, at least, one, one of the things that sets this decline apart is you know, we've been used to declines in the market. And it's amazing when I was going through this chart with a client the other day, and she was like, wow, we, we haven't had any declines that have come close to this since the financial crisis. And I said, well, we, we had that whole thing with the coronavirus. That was down even more. And then we've actually had a bunch of these declines that were down 18 and 19%. And we never quite got to that 20. And she didn't remember any of those, which, you know, I don't blame her. She's busy doing her own thing. But didn't what, we have, didn't we have like, cause we used to, when we used to do seminars and talk about the past, it was like 1999 or 2000. It was, it was a tech bubble. Yeah. Did, was it the S&P? Didn't it take a major hit? Oh, sure. It was down basically 50%, you know, from 2000 through 2002, recovered a bit there, and then down, I think, 56% in the financial crisis. Um, but, I, you know, I'm talking in the last decade, 12 years or so, you know, we've, we've had some of these declines, but almost, you know, exactly all of these declines, when stocks have gone down, Bonds have gone up, and bonds have been there as that diversifier. You know, I'm scared of stocks. I want to get out of there, so I'm going to put my money in bonds and be safe. And in my mind, that's what really sets this decline apart is that bonds have not been that diversifier. You know, the broad bond market is basically down, you know, 10%. I think it was down as much as 12% at one point this year. So, we have not had that classic relationship of of stocks and bonds. Now, right. I will well, with say, the turbo with the turbo rate increase being part of all this, yeah, not surprising as to the reason. Yeah, I mean, you basically had expectations that the Fed would raise rates one time in 2022. To now, they're probably on pace to raise rates 11 or 12 times. So you had a pretty dramatic shift in what people were expecting last year to what what's actually playing out here this year. 
Um, so when people ask, well, why have bonds gotten hurt so much? Basically, what you're seeing is the same moves that you've seen in the past, but instead of happening over four years, it happened over four months. So in the past, when it happened over four years, that you know, two or three percent per year loss, um, plus you get some income, you break even, doesn't feel so bad. When it happens over four months, you know, it, it feels pretty lousy here. So you throw all this stuff together. And what you had for the first six months of the year was pretty much one of the worst periods for a balanced portfolio. So to put some statistics to it, in the bottom 2% of anything we've ever experienced for a balanced portfolio. Wow. So if you said, well, this feels pretty bad. Yeah, it was was pretty bad there. Now, you know, I always finish as we're we're doing meetings with clients. I go through all of this and they go, oh, wow, this sounds really terrible. Um, and yes, I don't know if we're going to go into a recession, if it'll be a, a bad recession, if it'll be that soft landing the Fed really hopes for. You know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that. But we can sit here and look at past recessions, past business cycles, when the stock market starts to recover. And the stock market usually does pretty well after it has a really bad quarter. So I just had this chart in front of me here. Oh, here it is. Um, So, you know, I took a look at at some of the worst quarters for stock returns going back to 1926. And not surprisingly, a lot of the worst quarters were in that, you know, 1929, 1931, 32, you know, all of those things around the Great Depression. But you do have some bad quarters in the 1970s. We lost 25% at one point. Um, 2008, we lost 22% and so on. So this ranks as far as, you know, the worst. I think it's maybe about, I'm not going to count it, 15th, 16th worst um, of all time for quarterly stock losses. On average, so averaging all these together, One year later, after a bad quarter, the stock market's up 18%. Three years later, it's up 40%. Five years later, it's up 65%. And, you know, I keep going. So, you know, the the point is that, yes, if you need this money right now to buy a house or to, you know, make some major purchase and you had money in stocks, that's trouble. But if if you're like most of our clients where you're not taking money out in one big lump sum, you're taking that out over a long period of time, um, we really have to we have to let that natural market process play out. And just to wrap up this whole discussion on on the markets here, I found this quote. I don't even know. This is on some tweet called investment books. Um, So I'm not even sure which book this is quoting here. So my apologies to the author, Uh, but it says over decade long time horizons, your investment performance will be mainly derived from how you handle corrections, bear markets and market crashes. During every single bear market, there will be times when you wonder if the losses will ever stop. You will always wonder how much lower the market can go. The economic news will be terrible. Other investors around you will be depressed pessimism becomes pervasive. 
And, you know, we all know this, and I feel like even a casual investor nowadays has you know, seen something like this, but I think it always helps to be reminded. I think it does, too. I think that's uh, – it's good to keep reiterating these things. That was well-written, by the way. And, yeah, you know, <laughs> it, it sometimes it really doesn't start to get better until you think, oh, I'm doomed, but I'll just hang in there anyway. Right. Yeah, a lot of people, they, they feel oh. like that. They go, well, I'm doomed, but what else am I going to do? I'll just yeah. hang in I here. mean, I hope that's not this case, by the way. Having said that, right. I don't – I'm not thinking that, you know, clients aren't thinking that, but, and hopefully we don't get to that point with this one, but yeah, sometimes, I mean, the great recession was a perfect example of that. Right. Um, all right. Let's shift gears, Dave. You sent an article this morning just talking about social security. What, uh, what are workers doing with social security now? Uh, well, the gist of that article was that basically they are taking it early. They're not. They're not looking at our software. Was the, the gist of that? <laughs> well, let's let's you know argue both sides of this here. Of course, you know what what Dave's talking about is um, the software that will show you if you collect social if you wait to collect social security, you know, say all the way till seventy, you get those additional deferral credits, and if you live long enough, that makes sense. You know, and it depends on the assumptions you put in. But for most people, that break-even point where you say, okay, I could collect at age 66 or 67, but I'm going to get a smaller benefit, or I could wait all the way till 70, it's usually going to be a break-even point in your late 70s, early 80s, where you're essentially going to say, okay, I got the smaller benefit for longer, but now it's about equal. And if you live all the way to 90 or 95, you'll be glad that you waited to take that benefit. And, you know, once again, that's easy to look at on a piece of paper where I will actually argue the other side of this is if you're in a situation where you're having to decide between, okay, my investments are down. I didn't do a good job of diversifying. I don't have any sort of safe or guaranteed assets that I haven't lost money. You know, I, I basically was too risky. What can I do? I can either sell off some of my risky assets while they're way down, or I could collect Social Security a couple years early. In that case, I think you could actually make a good argument for taking Social Security. Absolutely. I think you'd make a statistical argument for that, that you would, our software would probably agree with that. Yeah, because in that case, you're allowing yourself to avoid selling those risky assets that are down right now. So, you know, maybe that's part of it. I'm more guessing that, you know, most Americans just didn't plan very well and are forced to, <laughs> to collect. I'm sure that, I mean, you know, that is the case. Right, of course. And remember, part of it's not just not planning well. Part of it is a lot of people are just in a situation that you can make an argument is no fault of their own where they're just forced to do that. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, we we discuss problems and issues here that, that frankly aren't problems for a lot of people. They just don't have the retirement savings to even – 
you know, have the flexibility to make these decisions. Um, and then the other part of that article that you sent was more people plan on continuing to work, which I think was news to absolutely nobody, is, you know, when you feel more economic uncertainty, you're probably not going to be so quick to give up that job. You're probably going to say, all right, well, maybe I can stick it out for an extra year or two if I have to. Um, so it's not not surprising at all in my mind. And the next thing, see, Dave, actually, this was one of those shows where I actually did prepare a show outline or <laughs> summary of things. And it's it, good. I like it so far. Well, it's, you know, it's when you haven't done a, a podcast in six weeks or so, you know, it's I, I save. Well, I don't know. I, I should go back and look. I shouldn't say it. Maybe it hasn't been that long. Um, but it's been a little while. And I save these articles just as I come across them. And so when you've got a lot of stuff, although I will say sometimes I save these articles and I, I look at them two weeks later. I go, why did I save that? That's not interesting at all. Um, but I, in this case, I, I did find a bunch of things. So one other thing just to touch on real quickly here. Um, Dave, have you seen any, any info about this Secure Act 2.0 that's working its way through the House and the Senate? Uh, I haven't seen the latest on it, no. Okay. I'm going to let you inform me. Well, so <laughs> I think the, the original Secure Act kind of got lost in the whole coronavirus shuffle. Um, <laughs> probably not the right term for it, but <laughs> the whole coronavirus thing. Um, the SECURE Act was passed at the end of 2019, went into effect in 2020 in January, and then, of course, you know, February, March is when everything went down. But the SECURE Act made some changes to required minimum distributions. Um, you know, it changed that age from uh, 70 and a half to 72. It uh, changed some rules around um, how much the RMDs had to be. And then also changed some rules around um, inherited IRAs. That was actually probably the biggest thing that they changed. Right. So ten year, the ten year thing you're talking about, correct? Correct. Yep. And that's well, let's just talk about it while, while we're on it. Um, that basically says in the past, if you inherited an IRA, you were allowed to take a distribution over your life expectancy. So you know, I inherited an IRA at age 35. You know, not 35 now, I'm 43 now, but if I inherited it then, I could take a distribution over the rest of my lifetime. The new rules said that you had to do it, have to do it over 10 years. So that, in my mind, that was probably the biggest change that really impacted people. Yeah. But for whatever reason, they are talking about a Secure Act 2.0. So there's got to be somebody out there clamoring for this. Um, and a couple of changes. Uh, first ones that, that would probably impact our clients, the RMD ages. They're talking about pushing that back even more. So pushing it back to 73 next year, uh, pushing it back to 74 in the year 2030 and 75 in 2033. I got to start thinking of when I'm going to be these ages now. <laughs> It's it's on the radar screen. How old am I? In 2030, I'm 70. So I'm 74 in 2034. No, wait. No, 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 no. I'm 70 at 2036. Excuse me. All right. 
uh, catch up. In 2034, I won't even be able to come close to doing this math in my head. (laughs) Um, Catch up contributions. They're talking about increasing those. Um, You know, that's basically, you know, how much you're allowed to do as a catch up contribution. Right now, it's just 50 and older. But of course, the House and Senate have different versions of this bill. But each one of them want to increase it even more if you're over 60. And qualified charitable distributions, you know, this is something that we bring up the clients an awful lot um, just because it's a smart way to give money to a charity without, you know, essentially <laughs> with avoiding uh, paying taxes on money in an IRA. So right now you're allowed to do up to $100,000 per year. I don't know the statistics, but I would say that 99.99% of people aren't coming close to that. Um, so kind of hard for me to see how this, uh, how this benefits everybody, but they want to index that for inflation. So you can give more and more away to, to charity each year and a few other small things in terms of early distributions, making more exceptions for the early distribution credits or penalty there. All right, had to cover that one. Last thing, Dave, that I wanted to cover, this is something that I've gotten a bunch of emails about. I can't remember if I talked about this in one of the past podcasts, but it doesn't hurt to touch on it again. Um, I've been getting a lot of emails from people about I-bonds. You know, what are they? Yes. Um, How do I buy them? Good thing to touch on. Yeah, so I-bonds are something that you can only buy directly through the U.S. Treasury. So you go to a website, treasurydirect.gov, I believe, and you are allowed to, as an individual, put in $10,000. That means husband and wife, you could each put in $10,000, but you're limited to that $20,000. Now, these have always been around, but they frankly have not gotten a whole lot of attention uh, because inflation has been so low. You know, prior to to this year, inflation has been running you know, 2% per year for a very long time. So why they're getting all the headlines right now is if you put money into I-bonds right now, for the first six months, you're guaranteed an interest rate of 9.62%. Right? So if you talk about on an annual basis, you know, so if, if you wound up getting zero return after that, you're at least getting 9.62 for that, you know, first six months. Right. But you're probably not going to get zero after that because no. I doubt inflation is going to zero. You know, I, none of us can predict, but I think inflation will, yeah, might taper off a bit, but it's probably going to stick around. Bottom line is you're probably getting a really good rate for that first year, no matter what. Really good. Yeah. And I mean, let's imagine that you put it in there, you got that big rate in the first year. And then, you know, gosh, Jay Powell, just his dream comes true. He, he executes this soft landing, and we get 25 3% inflation for the next five years. Okay, you know, so you got a big return in the first year, and you got 25 3% for the rest of the time. That's okay. Um, and right. I should say that's what the, the requirements, the holding requirements on this, you have to keep it for a year. You can – you can keep it for up to 30 years, but in those first five years, so after the first year, but before five years, if you surrender it, you're going to pay a penalty of three months interest. 
in my mind, that's not a big deal at all. Because if we think about why would we surrender it? Well, we'd probably surrender it if the returns on it were super low. So if inflation's at 2%, okay, so I'm going to pay half a percent interest to get out. No big deal. Right. If inflation's at 10%, I'm not surrendering it. Right. You're not getting out. <laughs> I'm so, holding I mean, on to it. Those are, that is a soft landing penalty for any right. type of investment like that. <laughs> That's a good deal. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's once again something I can't do. Uh, we can't recommend it for everybody because, you know, just like any financial product, not everything is good for everybody. It doesn't solve all the problems. But I think it's worth looking at um, if you've got some cash sitting around that's just doing nothing for you. Um, I don't know if you're near the end yet, but I am. I want to help you. With, okay. I, do you write that little blurb at the beginning of these podcasts, like the little preview blurb, or does someone else write that? I, yeah, I write it. Although <laughs> you're, you're welcome it. to write it if you want. I'm not going to write it. I'm going to give you a hint, and it would be something okay. like this. Instead of their usual BSing and general pontificating, <laughs> Steve actually prepared real information for this podcast. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm going to quite say that directly, but maybe I'll. I, I don't want you to say that directly. Right. But but good job. All right. Uh, we covered a lot of stuff there. Thanks for checking in. Stay safe. Hope everybody's summer vacations are going well.